Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of uh, a morning to gather and worship. Father, we pray as now we approach Scripture uh, that you would open our eyes, Lord, where we are blind, uh, where our ears are clogged and we're deaf, Lord, would you help us hear? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are ignorant, would you teach us? Where our hearts are hard, would you convict and humble us? Father, we pray you'd have your way here this morning and this time. Uh, Guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to FBC. So glad that you are with us. I want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 1. That's where we're going to be for the morning. You just heard Pastor Ian read it aloud, the beginning of the section. Again, John 13, starting in verse 1, as we continue our sermon series, walking through the gospel of John little by little. Thanks to uh, Pastor Lee for preaching last week. Always good to uh, hear him bring the word. And then next week, you guys are going to get to hear from Pastor Ian as he preaches. Come on. So three pastors in three weeks. Buckle up. It's going to be good. Um, as we start this morning, I want you to consider and think about how you measure greatness. Okay, when you think about greatness or significance, what comes to mind? What does it look like if someone is important? As I, as I look uh, at my own life and think about the people that I've considered to be great and significant and important, a few things come to mind. Sometimes I think about people who were powerful or influential, right? They could make things happen. They could give direction and people listened and they gave orders, They were a leader, they were a politician, they were someone who had personal assistance and a busy calendar. Maybe you measure greatness by success or achievement. You think about uh, Olympic athletes who get the gold medal, right? Like Chloe Kim, 21-year-old American snowboarder. Or Steph Curry who wins NBA championships, right? People who make it to the top of their field and win. That's what greatness looks like. Maybe you think about greatness in the sense of overcoming adversity, right? People who were dealt a pretty bad hand in life, and people counted them out, and yet they overcame great adversity to achieve, to make something of themselves, even when nobody else believed in them. They were counted out, but they took risks. Or maybe you think about greatness being measured by strength. People who had courage and conviction to withstand external pressure or the tidal wave of culture, to endure hardship and stand up for what they believe in. Maybe you measure greatness by wealth. People who have resources, they can buy things, toys, vacations, they can give generously, they have whatever they want. Or maybe you're saying, you know what, Pastor Matt, All of those things are rather vain, and greatness is measured by something else entirely. Okay. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about greatness, and we're going to see how Jesus defines greatness in John 13. He doesn't just define it. 
or teach about it. He's going to model it and display it for us. Notice again, though, a few words of context as we open chapter 13. Look at where it starts in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Remember again the context of where we are in the Gospel of John. It's the Passover festival, this annual celebration where the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to worship and they would remember the defining events of their history. God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. God parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land out into freedom as the people of God. This is where we've been now for a little while in the Gospel of John, really since early in chapter 12. It's these last few days before Jesus goes to the cross. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus knew, it says, that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus is aware of the timing of these events. It said the same thing in chapter 12. He knew that the hour had come. This uh, scene that we're reading about here is likely the Last Supper, okay? Thursday evening before the cross on Friday. Okay, so his, the hours of his earthly life are few at this point. But notice, in light of that still, verse 1, how it ends. Having loved his own, it says, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So in the midst of these events, we're reminded of the love of God. Yes, for the world, but even more specifically here for who? His own. Jesus spoke earlier in John chapter 10 of his sheep. Remember, he says, my sheep know me, they know my voice. So yes, God loves the world, but in a special way, he loves his people. Those who are in relationship with him, those whom he has called and saved, those who has trusted in him. He loved his own, the text says, even to the end. You notice that? Which could mean two things. One, it could mean he loved them to the uttermost, fully, completely, in every way possible he loved his own. Or saying to the end could mean he loved them in a, in a temporal sense. He loved them to the end of his life, to the last hour with his last breath. I think both are true, actually. And they point us forward to the cross, right? Jesus goes to the cross showing his love for his own. The extent of his love with his last breath for his people dying in their place. And so I ask you the simple question, Christian, do you know that you are loved by God? Do you need to be reminded this morning that you are loved by God? I think many of us wonder about God's love or doubt it. So I ask you, how do you know that God loves you? If you say, yes, God loves me, I know it. How do you know it? It reminds me of the great theologian Whitney Houston and her hit song, How Will I Know? You know the song? <laughs> How will I know if he really loves me? It's a great song. It's catchy. You're going to bump it on the way home in the car. I know you will. How will I know? I don't think she's singing about Jesus. I could be wrong. I don't think she's singing about Jesus. But if she were, it would be a valid question. How will I know if he really loves me? She even sings in that song. Do you remember the line? How will I know? And then the echo, don't trust your feelings. Hmm? 
How will I know? Love could be deceiving. And so she even points out there that it's possible to be misled by our feelings, to be deceived, to think that we are not loved, not cared for, confused, when God in reality does love us. So how will I know? Many of us wonder, how will I know? How do I know if God loves me? Because sometimes it feels like he's simply lost his patience with me. Maybe God's, uh, his heart has grown cold towards me. I've frustrated him. I've been a bother too many times. I've stumbled once again in my sin. Maybe you're here this morning wondering about the love of God for you. But verse 1 tells us he, Jesus, loved his own to the end. Romans 5.8 tells us, that God demonstrated his love, or he showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God showed us. He demonstrated it. He told us. He loves us on the cross. That's how we know. So Whitney Houston, that's how you know. Look to the cross. Whitney Houston, let's write a follow-up song for her. He went to the cross. He didn't turn away from bearing the sin of the world, he died in our place. He's not going to change his mind now. Now, notice another point in verse 2. The enemy is at work this night. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. But verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, small note here about the enemy, the devil, working on the heart of Judas, it tells us, right, leading to Jesus' betrayal and arrest and his ultimate death. We're not going to go into too much detail here, but notice simply this, that the work of the enemy is, is sandwiched in these verses by two truths, right? Verse 1, we read about the uh, love of Jesus for his people. In verse 3, uh, the, you know, the bottom piece of bread, we read about the power of God that has been given to Jesus from the Father. And then in verse 2, sandwiched in there is the enemy. Reminds us that God will permit the enemy to have a measure of influence now, but ultimately it is drowned out by swallowed up by the love of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God. The enemy will not have the last word. Notice then the real uh, heart of the drama that unfolds in these verses in verse 4. After these opening comments, verse 4, So he got up from the meal, Jesus, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus is at this special evening meal with his disciples. He's aware of the hour. The cross is looming. Jesus gets up. He wraps a towel around his waist. He takes water in this basin, and he washes his disciples' feet. He washes away the dirt and the grime and the toe jam and the sweat and whatever else was on the feet of his disciples. Some of us have have read this or heard this so many times that maybe it's lost a little bit of its power and its significance. Just how startling this would be. 
How unthinkable this act would be. Here's why. Um, Jesus does a few things. First, he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around himself. In doing so, he would resemble the appearance of a slave. But he doesn't only resemble a slave in appearance, but then in his actions. Because he does what only the lowliest servant would do, and he washes the disciples' feet. In the ancient world, it would be common for a host to leave out water for guests to wash their feet as they enter a home. It was necessary because, think about it, think about uh, roads and hygiene in the ancient world. I left a lot to be desired, okay? Different from how it is today. And so if you're walking around in ancient, you know, Jerusalem, you're getting dirt and dust and sweat on your feet and on your sandals and maybe even worse things, you know what I'm saying, I've collected on your feet. And so only the lowliest servant would do such a humble servile act like this, a lowly act. Sometimes it wasn't even appropriate for a servant to wash the feet of their, of their master or, or the disciples to wash the feet of their rabbi or teacher. Even that was crossing a line. It would have to be a slave oftentimes who would do it. And so hear me, this would never be done by a superior. Never would be done by a superior especially in a culture like theirs with such a high regard for status and honor, honoring elders, respecting those who have gone before you, acknowledging your superiors. Jesus here is violating very deeply, strongly held cultural customs and assumptions about honor and power and position and greatness. And not only was he the rabbi, he was the one deserving of this special treatment and honor, if anyone was, as opposed to his disciples. Realize his disciples, they weren't even great disciples. Can we just be honest about the disciples? I mean, think about how often they failed and misunderstood and got things wrong. And in just a few hours, they're going to abandon him as he goes to the cross. And Judas is going to betray him. And so it wasn't as if, you know, these are really deserving disciples, you know, they met all their marks, checked all the boxes on their monthly review. You know, Jesus really just wanted to give them an attaboy and show them, you guys are top-notch disciples. You deserve this. You worked hard. You earned it. Here you go. Honor. No, they weren't deserving. They were lowly, confused, fickle disciples. So what then does this tell us about Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us first the heart of God, right? Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes and he shows us what God is like, that God is a God of self-giving love. Yes, Jesus is the king, but he's a different kind of king. He's a servant king. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who came to suffer and serve and ultimately die for his people. And so Jesus shows us the heart of God and that greatness is not measured by the number of people that serve you, but it's measured by your willingness to go and serve other people. Because Jesus stoops down here to wash the dirty, grimy feet of his disciples 
And just a few hours later, he's going to go to the cross and stoop even lower to die a criminal's death to save his people. Reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. We preached through this back in January, if you remember it. Philippians 2 verse 6 says this of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He took the nature of a servant. God himself in human flesh, not just taking on human form, but the form of a servant to serve and to save us. So I ask you, how do you measure greatness? I've shared this before. Back in the year 2000, a book was released called The 48 Laws of Power by author Robert Greene, where he distilled thousands of years of, of history and leadership, where he analyzed some of the most influential and memorable figures in history. And he took their wisdom and compiled it and condensed it into 48 laws that average people like you and me could follow if we want to be great and influential and honored. Here are some of the examples. Law number six. He writes, court attention at all costs. The subtext, he goes on to say, everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd. Stand out. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger than the bland and timid masses. Hmm. Next one, law number seven. Get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Use the legwork of other people, he says, to further your own cause. It will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten and you will be remembered. Law number 34, be royal in your own fashion. Act like a king to be treated like one. Husbands, do not try at home. <laughs> will not go well. Act like a king. Walk in like you own the place so that others will treat you like a king and give you the honor that you deserve. Now, I don't think many of us would be as explicit as Brother Robert Greene would be in his writing, but many of us buy into these assumptions or assumptions like this about greatness, about power, about influence, about what success looks like, right? Be noticed, be applauded, get others to serve you, stand out. It's about you. Even in the church, right? Who has the title? Who has the position, the celebrated role? Who gets honored or mentioned up front and recognized and made much of? That's what defines greatness sometimes, we think. But Jesus shows us here that greatness is actually the opposite. Greatness, true greatness, according to Jesus, is marked by what? Humility. 
willingness to serve, lowering yourself to honor others, even if it means washing their dirty feet. So Jesus shows us the heart of God here, but notice there's more going on in the text. Notice Peter's response. Do you see how Peter responds in verse 6? He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Bold move by Brother Peter. No, he says to Jesus. As Peter often does, he speaks his mind, sometimes foolishly so. And he really here, I think, is probably voicing a shared sentiment. He can't be the only one thinking this in the room. It's probably a shared sentiment from the rest of the disciples as well. No, Jesus, this is all wrong. You shall never wash my feet. I won't allow this. This is beneath you. You're the master. We are the servants. This so violates their cultural sensibilities. He says, I can't allow it. Even in the Greek, the, the word order is emphatic. And so really it reads like this. Are you going to wash my feet? It's unthinkable. Disciples serve their teacher or rabbi, not the other way around. Notice what Jesus says. You shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered. Here's his answer. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's wash it all. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. <laughs> Slow down, Peter. Uh, their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Okay, I want to rewind verse 9. His initial response, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. This act of service, this washing of your feet is symbolizing this greater truth. You have to be washed. To have any part, any relationship with, any connection with Jesus, you have to let him wash you. You have to be willing to receive the work of Christ for you. See, in Peter, there's this pride on display, right? This self-sufficiency. Jesus, I am the one who serves you, right? You don't serve me. I'll be fine. I can handle my own business. I can take care of myself. I can wash my own feet. And isn't that how many of us think religion works? Clean yourself up. Get your act together, Follow the rules, you know, start going to church, clean your act up, earn your way, you handle your business, and then you can come hang out with Jesus. And so to say, hey, no, actually, Jesus needs to wash you, many of us say, whoa, that's not how the agreement is supposed to work. So Peter says, no, but Jesus says, you can't clean yourself up. You have to let me wash you. There's a humility required in receiving the gospel. One commentator put it this way that I came across this week as I was studying. They wrote this, The demand of the gospel is that we need Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, to wash our feet, to serve us. Yet, 
Everything in us repels such an idea. In fact, the pride that so easily conceals itself in religion would have us to think the exact reverse. We must serve Christ. But this is what makes the gospel so radical. It is not Christ, but we who need to be served. When Peter chastises the attempt of Jesus to wash his feet, what looks like an objection born of modesty is really disobedience and self-righteousness. At that moment, Peter was actually rejecting the grace of God. At that moment, he was rejecting the grace of God. And isn't that what we often do? Isn't that maybe the posture of some of us who are here this morning? We want to stand on our own two feet before God. We don't need grace because we're going to earn it. And we're going to act right. And we're going to jump through the hoops. Right? We, we're here and maybe we've built an impressive life. Maybe you're proud of your life and the way you've raised your kids and you run a business or have a successful career or you're financially stable or you're, you're a good person. You know, a better person than those, you know, yahoos who live down the street or whatever. And so you're like, you know, cute little demonstration here, Jesus, with the washing of the feet. And that's, that's neat and, you know, meaningful for some. But um, no thanks. I, I can clean myself up. Thank you. Jesus says, actually, you can't. If you try to stand on your own, your sin will crush you. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless you acknowledge your need and receive the gift of salvation, you won't truly be saved. Think of how Romans puts it, chapter 3, verse 23. Many of us know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And all are justified freely. One way to translate it could be giftily by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned, and how are we justified? We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ, through the shedding of his blood to be received how? By faith. We're saved by God's grace to be received by faith. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the message we celebrate every week, right? That through the work of Jesus, we can be saved, cleansed, forgiven, reconciled to God who loves us. So have you responded to this invitation from Jesus? Have you acknowledged your need before him? What do you need to be washed from, washed of? Have you come before Jesus and honestly said, you know what, Jesus, I see the anger in my heart. I see the pride in my heart. I see the, the lust in my heart. I see the selfishness in my heart. I see the laziness in my heart. I see the deceit in my heart. I see my tendency in, in my heart to run from you and do things my own way and want to be in charge. And I need you to wash me. That's the invitation for each of us. Now you notice as Peter hears this, he changes his tune, right? If you have to wash me, Jesus, then okay, 
All right, not just my feet, my hands, my head. Like, let's wash all of me. You know, I got a, I got a loofah. I got some organic shampoo. I got some foaming hand soap. Like, let's, here we go, wash me up. And Jesus is like, hey, slow down, hold on. He says what in verse 10? Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though, not every one of you. Again, speaking of Judas betraying him. But here's Jesus' point. There's, there's two ways to think about washing. He's taking this metaphor in a bit of a different direction. He says, if you have a bath, basically, take a bath, as many of us do, um, your whole body is clean. So Peter, you don't need to rewash everything. You simply need to have your feet washed. Most commentators see two truths on display here. First, there is this once-for-all washing in Christ. There's this uh, once-for-all bath, you could say, that takes place when you come to Jesus, when you believe, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ and you are saved and reconciled to God. Uh, the Bible talks about that in a sense of being washed or cleansed, cleansed of impurity, washed of your sin. Um, that's one of the truths on display in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. It talks about um, baptism, which is this like, uh, again, beginning of your walk with Christ uh, demonstration, right? Baptism comes after you have believed, kind of as this first step of discipleship. And Acts 22 speaks of baptism as a washing away of your sins in the water. Now, we don't believe that the act of baptism or the waters of baptism are what save you as if that, you know, it's magical and, you know, you go down and that's what actually cleanses you. Um, we believe that you're cleansed and washed through faith in Christ, right? When you believe, you are saved. So baptism is not the act that saves you, but it is simply a, a public demonstration, identification with Christ. Right? The, the imagery of water is significant. It demonstrates you have been washed and cleansed and made new in Christ. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be baptized. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I would love to talk with you about getting you baptized. I have yet to lose one in the water. They've all come back up, okay? So you don't have to be afraid. I have a very good track record there. Um, but baptism is this step of I am identifying publicly with Christ. It's not something like, hey, three years down the road, once I'm like, you know, really sure I'm serious about Jesus or learn a few more things about the Bible, then I'll get baptized. Um, qualifications for baptism are faith in Christ. Do you understand the gospel? Have you put your trust in him? So basically, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, uh, then baptism is an appropriate uh, step. So we'd love to talk with you about that. You can write that on your connection card if you're interested in baptism. We'd love to to walk through that with you. But then Jesus' point here is that, hey, once you've had a bath, once you've had that, that once-for-all justification by faith in Christ, you are made new, you are a Christian, then you will simply need to wash your feet. Basically saying, as you go about this world and about this life, your feet might get a little dirty. There will be sin. You will need to repent. You will need to confess sin. There will be things that you'll need to uh, bring to Jesus and ask forgiveness for. You'll get a bit dirty. And so you'll regularly, as a Christian, need to be in the habit of confession and repentance. And that, not, that is not like this original bath again, as if you have to get rebaptized and you become a Christian all again for the first time. That's not what it's saying. You are already washed. You're already in Christ. And simply confession and repentance is that washing of your feet as you go about life. 
Now notice, after this act of foot washing, Jesus is gonna teach his disciples an important lesson about what this means for them, for us. Okay, so look what he says afterwards, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things. You will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus comes to his disciples after the foot washing, and he says, teachable moment. Do you see what I've done for you? I've washed your feet, right? You call me teacher and Lord, he says, and that's what I am. And I, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. Right? I've set you an example that I want you to go and do likewise. So Jesus loves us, and he serves his people in great humility and sacrifice, and says, this is how I want you to, my disciples, to conduct yourself in the world. Great resource, the Bible Project describes this part of John this way. Acts of loving generosity are to be the hallmark of Jesus' followers. Again, the world may view greatness in terms of power and influence and wealth and status and fame. Jesus says, my followers are to view greatness being marked by love and service. I want you to go and serve one another. Back in Denver, Amber and I were um, volunteering in a youth ministry while, um, you know, going to a church. I was in seminary at the time and wasn't on staff or anything, just volunteer, you know, youth leader. And we went to winter retreat with a bunch of the students, this kind of weekend trip. And I remember Saturday night of this trip, there was this powerful message about the gospel and the love of Jesus. And then in our like church time, you know, they break up all the different churches, go back, you know, with your youth group and you have some kind of, you know, bonding time, you know, debrief time. And our youth pastor, Trevor, um, had us, had the students um, wash one another's feet. Okay, so we had like spray bottles and little towels And he said, okay, you guys have an opportunity to love and serve one another as Jesus told us to. And so for the next, you know, half hour, however longer, students would, you know, no one was forced to do it. It wasn't like, wash their feet now. It was like, hey, if there's someone in this room that you want to serve and honor um, and and show great love towards, then here's a step that you can take. And so people, um, you know, the kids got up and kind of went across the room and they asked, hey, can I wash your feet? And the people said yes, and they washed one another's feet. And it was really powerful. I don't think I've ever seen it like lived out pra- like uh, literally that way before. It was really meaningful. It was actually um, a little smelly and awkward and uncomfortable too, but, but really meaningful to see these students love and serve one another in this way. But beyond, beyond you know, doing a literal foot washing, which you could, you know, do that for one another after the service. Um, there, there's supposed to be this lesson about 
what our presence in the world is supposed to look like, right? If we bear the name of Jesus, here's how we are to carry ourselves with love for one another, service, humble acts of generosity, especially following Jesus in a post-Christian culture where at best most of your neighbors are suspicious (laughs) of you being a Christian. Uh, Some of them are, are downright antagonistic towards the church and towards Jesus' followers today. Jesus says, this is how I want my people to carry themselves, um, to love and serve one another. I want the outside world to be able to see that. And I think we could extend the application to loving and serving uh, those in our lives that are beyond the walls of the church as well. Pastor Jared Wilson wrote this. He said, you can go around sincerely and passionately lopping off people's ears thinking you're defending Jesus and still not get at all what his presence in the world is meant to look like. And he references there in the garden. Remember how they come to arrest Jesus just a little bit. And and Peter, you know, our boy Peter, pulls out a sword. He's like, you're not going to arrest Jesus, basically. And he swings and he he wasn't aiming for the ear, you know. He wasn't aiming for the ear. But he he missed, you know, the head. And he went, he got the ear. And it was just, Jesus is basically like, you know, put the sword away. And so Wilson commenting on this is like, sometimes we sincerely and passionately think that our job is to defend Jesus and fight off the world with our swords and say, get back, we're going to hold our ground and we can, in doing so, miss what the presence of Jesus in the world is supposed to look like. I'm not saying we don't take stands for truth where appropriate, but I'm saying we need to be marked by this posture of love, of service, of lowering ourselves, honoring others, So I ask you, how can you live that out in your life this week? In your home, what would it look like to be a servant in your home? What would it look like to be a servant in your neighborhood with your neighbors? What would it look like to be a servant at work? Is there a task at work you think maybe is is below you? How can you go out of your way to surprise others with how you serve them? in a refreshing way. I remember back again, uh, same church, we were um, part of this you know, young adult group there and one Sunday after church we went out to lunch at the, um, it was like a health food restaurant. It was called Buffalo Wild Wings. And we um, ate a lot of food. There was probably like 15, 20 of us. And um, the senior pastor of our church, Jeff, who then became my boss, didn't really know him very well at the time, was eating there. And he saw us, you know, 20, 15 to 20, you know, young adults from the church. And he came over, said a quick hello, and then he left. And then we realized as we went to pay our bill that our whole tables tab was, was picked up, paid for. It's like hundreds of dollars in, um, again, health food, chicken wings. It was great. And we were, we were struck by that because we're like, wow, here's the lead pastor of our church. And um, he didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to come and, and bless us. Uh, it's not like we had really much to give him in the sense of like, it's not like we were, you know, the big givers in the church, you know, and he wanted to say thank you. No, he, he just went out of his way. He didn't even tell us that he did it, but we saw him and we knew. And we heard after him um, that he, he paid our whole bill. He served us in this really meaningful way. We've, we've thought about that um, ever since. So how can you in your week, in your work, in your home, wherever you might be, do a a meaningful, special act of service for someone else in the name of Jesus? 
Now, can I give you a word of caution? It's possible to hear a message like this and go out and try and serve for the wrong reasons. Your motivation matters. It's possible to hear, you know what, hear this and say, Jesus, I'm gonna go be a really good foot washer. I'm gonna be so good at this. God, you're gonna be so proud of, of the way that I do this. I'm gonna be a really serious Christian. I'm gonna make this happen. I'm gonna serve people. I'm not gonna, gonna serve one person this week. I'm gonna do it two times. I'm gonna let the pastor know about it. It's gonna be really great. You can do all that and still be motivated out of fear or works righteousness or trying to earn your way before God. And so here's the key, verse 14. What Jesus is saying, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Notice the order of that verse, the logic of the verse. What comes first? I have washed your feet. That's where we start. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Remember the gospel. Remember your need. Remember how Jesus has saved you. Remember how you are loved. He has washed you. Remember how he has done for you what you could not do for yourself and given you what you do not deserve. That's eternal life in Christ. It humbles us when we receive this. And then, as we are humbled and we receive the work of Christ, then in gratitude we go and serve others. With a joyful heart we go and serve others. In great freedom and love, in response to what God has done, not to earn it. The order here is really significant. Receive, then go and do likewise. And so as we close uh, this time in the service, we have an opportunity to practice that order, to receive and then to be sent out to serve. And here's how we're gonna do that. First step, receive. We're gonna take communion together as a church family. You receive these uh, communion deals when you came in. And so in just a moment, uh, we're gonna take the elements together and then the second thing we're going to do is um, after, well, after the closing song, you're going to leave and we are going to send you out with these towels. There are towels all across the room. Everyone needs to grab one and take it home with you. And I was uh, talking with Carlene and she reminded me that we've done this before, the whole towel handout, but it doesn't matter. We're doing it again because it's helpful. It's, you're going to bring it with you and you're going to take it home and you're going to put it somewhere where you can see it or maybe in your car or maybe in your gym bag or maybe at your desk at work or in the kitchen or wherever you want. And it's going to remind you of two things, how Jesus has washed you and cleansed you and saved you. It'll remind you of the work of Christ for you. And also it'll remind you of this call of Jesus to go and do likewise. I want you to see this. I want you to remember that he's called you to be a servant, to love others in practical and radical big ways. So would you find a way to do that this week as you take this towel with you? There's also, a, I guess, a you know, water thing on the outside of the building. If you literally wanted to wash someone's feet after the service, you can do that. It's out there, but you don't have to. Okay, we're gonna take communion, friends. Um, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. I'm gonna pray in just a moment and then we'll take the elements. And he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this is what communion is about, remembering Jesus, remembering the work of Christ on the cross, his death, his broken body and shed blood for you and for me. He told us to do this in remembrance of him. And so why uh, twice a month when we gather, we take these elements as an act of worship. I'm gonna pray and then we'll, we'll take these together. Lord Jesus, we, 
we come before you, we want to say thank you that you have washed us. You say, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Thank you for washing us through your blood on the cross. Thank you for saving us and forgiving us. We remember you this morning. And Lord, we also pray that you would then send us out with great joy and gratitude and love for those in our lives and that we would be known for and marked by great love and service to others. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.